Where we pick up this week, Jesus is still explaining. He's, he's arguing with the Jewish leaders about how, who he is, how he operates, and he's trying to get them to understand he has this working relationship with God the Father. And last week, we emphasized what those inner workings were of that relationship and, and how and why his life points to God and God, God then appointed him to be judge over mankind. And so this week, it's kind of ironic that Jesus said, in fact, he's appointed me judge because what they're doing is they're putting Jesus on trial. You guys ever sat in a trial? Maybe you were part of the defense, the defendant. Maybe you were part of the prosecution. Maybe you were a, uh, a juror, and the fate of the defendant was up to you. Well, here what we're going to read today is that Jesus, Jesus is the defendant in this trial. This trial that they just automatically call him into. And what's going on is he's surrounded by people who don't like him. And I got a real question for you to ask. When you're surrounded by people that don't like you, how do you respond? These people are plotting to kill Jesus. And so for us, would, would you shut down? Would you not say anything? Would you explain your position? Would you try and win their acceptance? Let's see what Jesus does. John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. It's a lengthy section of scripture, but I felt we need to read it all. Let's begin. Jesus says, if I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me, and I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message, but I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish and prove that he sent me, and the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you for I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses accuse you. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you 
your word, it, it doesn't talk about just the, the, the great parts of, of our lives, the great parts of your son's life, but it, it, it brings out the struggle. It brings out the moments of rejection. And God, I pray that, Lord, your spirit is already stirring in this place, and I believe there's something you have yet to do. And I, God, I just ask that every heart and mind will be open and attentive this morning to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. I've only been a part of one hearing before in my life, and it was traffic court. Uh, a lady ran a yield sign in front of me. I T-boned her, and she, she wouldn't accept the, uh, the charges. And so next thing you know, I get called to court. And here I am, a 16-year-old kid, and that was her defense. Well, he was a 16-year-old kid. It's got to be his fault, right? And uh, I remember being terrified out of my mind. Just because I, I, here I am, I'm 16. I am in this unfamiliar situation. I do not have any control over this outcome. And I am just looking for favor anywhere possible, Right? Now here's Jesus. He is before a bunch of men who don't like him. They have an agenda, and he is in their court, right? He is in their court. So they only seek one thing. This guy's guilty, and we need to prove that he's guilty because we do not like him. And so as they're questioning Jesus, he knew his testimony for himself. It would not stand. Imagine if you just went into court and you're like, well, I only have my word against theirs. You guys know that your word alone in a court is not good enough. You need witnesses. And so Jesus developed, or, or Jesus did this based out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. I want you to listen to this. It says, but never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. They must all, there must always be two or three witnesses. And so, remember, these guys, they want to kill Jesus. They have looked at the words that he has said as being blasphemous. And so, Jesus, what he does is he quickly identifies his witnesses. And so, he begins to defend who he is with these four witnesses. The first is God the Father. He says in verse 32, but someone else is also testifying about me. And I assure you that everything he says about me is true. If you hail back to Mark chapter 1, verse 11, it, it says, And I, a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. God has testified to who his son is, and it has been revealed to mankind. God was also, uh, excuse me, God was also present within Jesus' miracles. So, so Jesus is saying, By the very work, by the very nature of who I am, by what I do, you see God the Father. Then Jesus calls on his second witness, John the Baptist. In verse 32, he says, but someone else is, or, or excuse me, in, in verse 33 through 35, he says, in fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist and his testimony about me was true. 
We have spoken about John the Baptist before. I've actually covered John the Baptist at this church more than any other time in my entire ministry. And John the Baptist told bold statements about who Jesus was in, if we went all the way back to chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And so John the Baptist, he was speaking about this truth, and the men, they, they, they were getting excited by what John was saying. Is They're saying, the Messiah, he's going to be coming, and we need to be ready, and John was preparing them for that. And so all these guys are excited, but now he's here. And they're not buying it. Now John the Baptist, he was speaking out in truth. And his whole ministry was in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And he recognized exactly who he was. And everything out of John's mouth he spoke about the Messiah was in truth. The third witness Jesus calls is his teachings and miracles. Listen to verse 36. He says, but I have a greater witness than John my teachings and my miracles the father gave me these works to accomplish and they prove that he sent me Jesus was doing things that had never been seen or done before and just by that that in and of itself should have revealed who he was that should have been good enough, but it wasn't for them. But it also points to the truth that there is a greater work inside of him through God the Father. I don't know about you in your life, but when a miracle comes my way, it is an undeniable work of the supernatural and an obviousness that God is doing something great. And, and no one can deny that God is at work in it because of its supernatural power. The fourth witness Jesus calls on is the Old Testament scriptures. He says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these men for just a moment. These were men who constantly read the Bible and they held themselves in higher esteem compared to everyone else. They're like, I know the word of God better than you. That was, that was their stance. And so the very, the, the, the very scriptures that they studied, the very scriptures that they knew, pointed to the coming of the Messiah, but because of their own ignorance, they couldn't see how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. It says, Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Church, in which there are over 330 prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. Let me tell you what Jesus is teaching us here. One of the first things he's teaching us is what you believe you must confess. What you believe you must openly confess. He was simply, all he was doing was simply stating the truth and they put him at, on trial because of his word. Now, for you and I, we must consider that the moment we speak truth, obviously, there, there is, a, there is a, a reaction to every action. And so we fully expect some form of reaction. But listen to Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. 
It says, in fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. Then everyone should know verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But here's what I accept. So, so if we're sitting in this place today and you and I, if, if we say that we believe that Jesus Christ came down for us, that he, he, he was a sacrifice for our sins, he died on that cross and that he rose again, then we must also come to the conclusion that we cannot just hide this in our heart. Amen? We cannot hide these things in our heart. And ultimately, God is going to hold us accountable for what we say. And church, I want you to catch this. Our words do matter. Listen to Matthew 12, 36, something that Jesus says. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. Think about that for a moment. Think about the idle words we might speak when the boss tells us something we don't like. Every idle word you might speak when that person on the interstate cuts you off. And had you not been alert, it could have been bad. Jesus accepted that testifying about himself wasn't good enough. It had to be spoken by others, and so he pulled in witnesses to prove who he was. And so you and I, likewise, have the opportunity to testify about Jesus to an unbelieving world. It can be testified through you and I. And so the most important part of our message is that it speaks to the truth of who Jesus is. I want you to catch me on this. It's not about how much everyone else is going to like you, it's not about if they'll just choose to believe everything that you believe. It's that whether or not the message that you speak speaks to the truth of who Jesus is. And you are going to use the same verifiable evidence to prove it that Jesus did to the Jewish leaders that day. I want you to think about it. You can prove it by God's apparent work in your life, right? You can prove it by others' similar testimony. And what others have witnessed have changed in your life. You can prove it by the miracles and healings that have taken place. And you can prove it by the scripture that reveals what you say is true. So we have this challenge. You and I have this challenge before us to be bold with this truth as Jesus has been. Because the work that Jesus Christ has done in your life should not be kept quiet. It should not be kept quiet. Jesus illustrated this in Matthew chapter 5 as he, 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 he calls it a light that shouldn't be hidden under a basket or a city being on a hill is open for everyone to see. And so by what Christ has done in our lives should openly testify that God is at work inside us through his Son. And so seriously, I need to ask you a question. If that is not evident, have you really opened the door to let him change you? Because you and I, we can't afford to be secret in our faith. 
We can't afford to keep it quiet. In fact, Jesus said that if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us before his heavenly father. So think about those ramifications for just a moment. We risk eternity not being open about who Jesus is. We risk eternity. Now this doesn't mean, I want you to catch this, this doesn't mean that you need to march out of here immediately and you need to walk to the entrance ramp of 235 right here and you need to hold up that sign that says the end is near. This doesn't mean that you need to hold up the sign that says, repent and be saved, you sinners. That's not what that means. But you and I, because of our testimony and simply being a witness to who Jesus is, others will come to know who he is as well. But you can't hide it. So say you and I, we leave this place and we decide, you know what? I've been quiet for too long. I've let things slide in my testimony for Jesus Christ for too long. I've had opportunities. I've missed them. And I keep being quiet in my faith and I shouldn't be anymore. And so you decide, I'm going to go and that coworker, he's going to be complaining about his problems all over again. And I know I'm going to have my opportunity to tell him there's a better way and I'm not taking it. And so next thing you know, you go there and you just spill your guts to him. You're like, this is who I am, this is who I've become, and God has done an amazing work in me, I want him to do the same amazing work in you. And that person then looks at you and says, I want nothing to do with you. See, Jesus Christ knew he'd be rejected. He knew. He accepted that he'd be rejected. No matter how many miracles he performed or proved he was more adverse in the scripture than they were, they did not accept him. And yet Jesus, he never slipped up. He never made a mistake. And everything he did was with purpose. And yet it still wasn't good enough. In fact, he illustrated this in verse 43. He says, for I have come to you in my father's name and you rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. Jesus is saying, I am who I am because of the Father. Yet, because I attribute everything in my life to him, you, you don't accept me. You choose to accept the people who are trying to build up themselves. The people who are trying to make themselves their own name great. And so he's realizing that these other people, they, they, they have come, they, they have stood on their own merits, and yet they're celebrated. And these men that are arguing with him, they loved, they just absolutely loved their re religious life. They loved that more than they loved God. It was about making their own names great. It was about being engulfed in that old-time religion and making sure everyone followed it. And these Jewish leaders, they weren't representative of God. And it made them hypocrites. It made them hypocrites. And so also, in turn, what Jesus is saying, that this makes you liable, that this makes you open to judgment. And so anytime someone is falsely accused, in the case of Jesus Christ, he's standing there, he's been falsely accused, and Obviously, Jesus has done his best to prove his innocence. And anyone who stood before this court, falsely accused, could also then, in turn, once they proved their innocence and they couldn't have anything against Jesus, the, then they could turn around and they could prosecute those who accused them. 
which is what Jesus did. He recognized in them, it was never about the, the value of interpretation of Scripture. They valued their own lives above everything. And so the only way they would choose to accept Jesus, if Jesus would become one of them. So they naturally stood opposed to him and refused to receive him. And what we can learn from this is Jesus prepares us to be rejected. You know, modern day Christianity, Christianity especially here in the United States right now, it's put on this false front. And church present these images of, you know what, you're cool, they're cool, I'm cool, we're all cool. So let's just sit around and be cool together, right? Everything will be good, we'll go on with life and we'll have fun and we'll celebrate and we'll encourage each other and things will just be good. The problem is with that, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus teaches his disciples that families will reject each other based off of their belief in him. Families will reject each other. He get this, he prepared his disciples. They're getting ready. They're getting ready to go out and minister. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They love Jesus. They trust Jesus. They know who he is. They've seen him do amazing works. And now Jesus is saying, I am releasing you to do the same thing. And so he is sending them out in twos. And as he does this, he gives them this instruction. Listen to this. Matthew 10, 11 through 15. Whenever you enter a city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the home, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessing stand. If it is not, take the blessing back. If any household or town refuses to welcome you, or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on the judgment day. This warning here and other warnings of persecution that Jesus has given speak to the level of obedience we need to attain because this challenge all of a sudden becomes for you and I Accepting rejection, even though we are preaching a message that is based out of love, hope, mercy, and everlasting peace. You and I, we found the love of Christ and we said, you know what? There should be a love that everyone wants. But we know how the truth can hurt and we know how our sinful nature can react to the truth. And so Jesus, in, in, in preparing to be rejected, he made a statement. He said, I am not here to win your approval. I'm not here to win your approval. It's a great lesson for you and I, isn't it? To not be about the approval of others. Because if anyone knew how to react to a mob, it was Jesus. And of course you would say, Pastor, now Jesus' reaction to the mob, I just want you to know this, Jesus' reaction to the mob put him to death. I understand that. It cost him his life. But he warns us that a life committed to him will be pre better prepared to make that same kind of sacrifice. And so that's who you and I need to choose to be, no matter whether people are for us or against us. Listen to Matthew 16, 24 through 26. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what would you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Would you rather risk this life or risk eternity? Understand that my eternal hope is more important than my physical reality, my physical well-being, right? I don't know about you, I hate rejection. I absolutely hate it. In fact, a, a great portion of my life, I was terrified and I wanted everyone's approval. I was terrified of being rejected. I wanted everyone's approval. Something you might not know. Do you know wanting the approval of others is a sign of selfishness? It's a sign of selfishness. I want them to be happy with me. I want them to be okay with who I am. Now, in reality, is that possible to win the approval of everyone around you? You know it's not, right? So here I am. I'm a 27-year-old pastor going, go, going to pastor my first church, right? And there's this woman in the church. Her name is Mary. And uh, my dad's already laughing, so he knows where this is probably going. Mary is 90 years old. Mary lives across the street from the church. Mary helped build the church. And as far as Mary concerned is, she runs the church, right? And I remember I, I, it, it, there was one day and the church sat on an entire block. In fact, a school used to sit where the church sits. And so there was four acres and it was mostly grass. And it was my responsibility to mow the lawn. And so, as you can imagine, you have to dedicate a lot of time, if you don't have a big tractor, to, to mowing four acres. And so I would do it about every nine to ten days. And I'm going to tell you, Prairie City as a town had about 380 people max. It was a small town. And so, there, as you can imagine, as a lot of these real small towns bring, there are houses that are dilapidated, there's properties that are not very well taken care of. And so, in my mind, Grass can go nine or ten days before I mow it, right? It's fine. Not that Sunday morning. Mary walks into church, and church is about to start in about seven to ten minutes, somewhere in that time frame. And she sits down, and obviously, it, first off, can I just say this? Don't interrupt a pastor before he preaches. Not wise. Not wise. You now you'll probably see me snap like a firecracker. But anyways, um, Mary looks at me and she goes, so here I am trying to win the approval, respect, trust of this godly woman who helped start this church. And I go over there and I, I bend down and I'm like, yes, yes, Mary. And she goes, that lawn looks awful. And I expect you, as soon as church is over, to get out there and mow that lawn. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, Lord. And everything inside of me just completely crumbled. 
And I was one of those at the time that I was in more hurt than I was anger. And I was just hurt. Because Mary wasn't happy with me. Now church, I am telling you, I should have known better. I should have known better. And not to make you all of a sudden go, wow, I really like Aaron. I really care about Aaron now. I, I don't care about that anymore. I learned that lesson through this woman. Because it wasn't six months later that my wife is on the way to church that morning with our three boys. One of the church member, members is following behind her and they watch her car flip over five times. That person stops to make sure what's going on. Ambulances were called. Next thing you know, she rushes up to tell me at church we, we didn't have cell phones at the time or something was going on where I couldn't be reached. And she came up and she said, Aaron, I don't know how bad it is, but it's bad. You need to go. And so I left and uh, they were putting Josiah in an ambulance when I got there and they went off to the hospital and I went there and praise God, no broken bones, no no internal damage, nothing was wrong. And we, we leave the hospital that day and I get to church the next Sunday. Church starts up. Obviously, my life has been a little shaken. And Mary says, I have something to say right at the beginning of service. She stands up and she says, I just want all of us to praise God for the former pastor, Pastor Don, who's still here because he takes over every time he's gone. And yet another level, another level was just scraped right off of me, right? And I'm thinking, I, I can't win for losing here. But I'm going to tell you something. By the end of the five years that I was there, something had happened inside Mary where she openly told me and she told others she was praying that I would never leave. But you know what? God had stirred something in my heart that if I'm going to be about his will, people are not always going to accept me. And that's fine. And so the line of trying to win the approval of others, you're going to find that it is always moving and pleasing people is going to be an impossible task. But God's standards, this is the, the one thing I, I love about God above everything else because where I can try and win the approval of you, and I'm going to tell you there's going to be something that we disagree on right away, I know exactly where God stands. He makes it so clear and that line never moves. It never changes. It always stays the same. So I know who God is each and every time I approach him I know exactly what he's expecting of me each and every time I approach him and I could examine against the word of God if I've done my part to honor him or not so my life chooses to please God and you and I we must choose to please him in the Old Testament we learned that God looked at sacrifices as a sweet smelling aroma to him that's what pleased him sacrifices. When Christ came, Christ was the perfect sacrifice, and it was no longer sacrifices that were the sweet-smelling aroma. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He says, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. 
But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. You and I please God by being like Christ. Are you hearing me? You and I please God by being like Christ. So if your aim is to be like someone that you highly respect, you're like, Pastor, you got to meet this guy. Everything I try and do emulates him. He is a great guy. Or if you say, you know what, my grandfather, he, he was a great person, and everything I do, I, I want to be like him. Or you know what, there's this guy on TV who's really cool, and you, you know, I try and model my life after him. I'm telling you that no matter who you try and model your life after, after if it is not Christ, your aim is going to be way off. You are going to fall way short. You are not going to be able to please God by being like someone else. Are you hearing me? You're going to please God by being like Christ. And so there are people that are in your life that will choose to reject you simply because of your faith. And you want to know what the only thing is you can do about it? Pray for them. Pray for them. Choose to love them no matter how they treat you. So you and I need to be charged with going to this lost world in the name of the Father. Jesus came in the name of the Father, so we should too. He came bearing witness to God's love by his own life. Check this out though. He chose to do that. He didn't come because we begged for it. He gave humanity what we needed, not what we wanted. And so God chose to send his son. Listen, listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God didn't say, you know what, they do such a great job serving me, I'm just going to give them my son. He didn't say that. Now for you and I to walk confidently in the name of the Father, we need to be ready to accurately bear witness to who he is. Accurately bear witness to what he has done. And accurately bear witness that he has prepared a place for us. We can't sit and rest on our laurels. We can't sit idly by while this world tears itself apart. Church, there is nothing I'd rather do in my own comfort Then just sit back and let people argue and not be a part of it, not insert myself into it. But I got to tell you, the world is at stake. Eternity is at stake. And if we just keep silent, is it because we didn't care enough? Is it because we were ashamed? What's the reason for it? I mean, I, I really ask you this morning to, that we start searching our hearts because don't get me wrong, some of us are eager to insert ourselves into those arguments, but we're coming at it from the wrong side. We're coming at it as picking one of the sides of the world's arguments, and instead, we aren't interjecting Christ into that conversation. And that's what we need to be doing, amen? We need to be interjecting Christ in that conversation. And so I have a rhetorical question for you. It was once asked in a class. 
And the question was this, how much is a soul worth? How much is a soul worth? And you know, I heard several answers that day. But God would tell you this is how much a soul is worth. His son's life. His son's life. A value so high, it can't be measured or quantified. We could not possibly come to the conclusion of what the value on that is. And and God is so crazy. He's so ridiculous in his love, like where we can't comprehend it. And and by his standard, he's not crazy at all. He knows exactly what he's doing. But when, when he says that I am willing to leave the 99 sheep in order to go get that one that is lost... That is, that is how crazy his love is. Can, can, you, can you wrap your mind around that for just a second? Because you and I would say, well, we have this 99 we need to take care of. We can afford to lose one. We can make up for that one. Not with God. With God, he says, there's too much value on that life. And this is what I also need you to catch. You and I cannot predetermine whether or not someone is going to reject you. You have a message that needs to get out, even if you end up on trial for it. Jesus Christ, we learned at the the end of John, chapter one, Jesus Christ came full of truth and full of love. And those two parts, they work together. It wasn't he came full of love and he sprinkled some truth in there. He came full of truth and he came full of love. And so you and I, that needs to be a part of our message. We can't, we can't yield the truth. The truth is there. But can you proclaim the truth in love? I gotta tell you, this world needs Jesus Christ more than ever more than ever. We are so desperate and clinging at so many different things for a hope, for a good direction. And the only thing that is going to bring people satisfaction is the good news of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? 